This episode of the Restoration Today podcast is brought to you by Goldmore. Is your business struggling to retain employees? Stop burning out your workers and do more with less and start increasing your profits. Become a licensed Goldmore member today and grow your profits using their proprietary system in your restoration business. Goldmore is so confident they offer a 90-day money-back guarantee on the license fee if you are not completely satisfied with the results. Visit goldmoreusa.com to discover how you can truly benefit by using Goldmore, the easiest, most profitable mold removal system, period. Hey there, thanks for checking out this episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Today we're going to do some storytelling and I am very excited to share the story of David Hart or really let David Hart share his story. Um, You probably have seen him at trade shows at the Ram Air booth. He's always smiling and he's got big muscles and you would recognize him and um, he looks like Wolverine. So he also is a doppelganger. So Anyway, okay, I digress. All right, so we are here to tell David's story a little bit because I've learned a little bit about him over the years and more so recently. And I want to share some about what he's invented and um, his contributions to the industry. But I kind of want to start back at the very beginning of what it looks like to be an inventor and share the story of an inventor who is in the restoration industry. And I think this is really exciting. So David, thank you very much for joining me. So I'm just going to, let's start at the very beginning. And I'm hoping that you can share your experience in school, in elementary school. Start there. Uh, going into a little bit of a dark area here. <laughs> uh, I was a nerd. I was a full on nerd. I was the king of the nerds. Um, I didn't play sports. And I just, since the day I was able to even utter the word science, I was obsessed with it. And uh, I was always building things. Um, You know, back in those days, uh, I was back in the, gosh, the seventies. I can even really digest that. yourself, okay. (laughs) I know, right? Um, There was a store called Radio Shack and it was my favorite I call it a vacation destination, go there and get some electronics and build some stuff, you know, but uh, yeah, in elementary school, um, I was a nerd that got bad grades, mm-hmm. which is kind of a twist. And it's because I, di- I didn't care about the curriculum. I didn't care who sailed what ocean in what year, you know, I was too busy dreaming about, you know, black holes and, you know, things like that. So, yeah. all right. So we're not talking about, you're not at home building Lego. You're at home disassembling things in your house, right? Like, tell me some things that you disassembled. And how did your mother feel about you disassembling things in her house? You know, it would be a lot shorter interview if you asked me what I didn't disassemble. (laughs) Um, If it had an electrical cord going to it, I was taking it apart. I was just, I was obsessed with electricity. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, as a small child, I remember sitting there looking at the lamp and thinking there's gotta be a way to draw electricity to that without that cord. And it was many years later that I discovered this guy named Nikola Tesla, right? Who, who had dreamed that and, and uh, gosh, if he was still with us, it'd be amazing, but I'm digressing. Um, I took some things apart. Uh, I would take radios apart. I was really obsessed with radios. The fact that you would have a station at one location and a device far away from it would pick up a signal from that was just mind blowing to me. So I took radios apart, things like that. And then I built a radio out of a, there was C's candy was a big thing in the day. We had a C's candy box. I, I took components. I got a radio shack and whatnot, build this radio. You had a little earphone that you plug in there. And uh, yeah, I was always taking things apart and building things. 
Do you still have that radio? It'd be so cool if you did. Oh, no, I don't. But... Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. My parents were not big fans of my disassembling, uh, you know, so a lot of that stuff found itself into the trash pretty quickly. I can understand that with a child over here who likes to build things as well. It's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Put it back together again. That's the ticket, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So school's boring, not loving it unless it's science. Um, so you figure, all right, I got to make it through school and then... What? What happened after high school? What well, was your path? throughout school, because of my poor grades, I was um, brainwashed into believing that I'd, I'd be a nobody. And, and I don't mean to say nobody, because ditch diggers are somebody, and they're somebody very important. But that's what I was, they actually used that analogy. Um, you're going to be a ditch digger. Just be a good one, they said. And uh, so, you know, I bought into that. And um, I just went from dead end job to dead end job after that. I uh, washed dishes for a while at a Denny's restaurant, worked at some car washes, gas stations, things like that. And those are good jobs. I'm not putting those down, but that was kind of where I was going. Yep. Okay. So then you made a really big decision that I think helped steer kind of the course of the rest of your life and where you went from there. So you joined the military. So which branch did you join? How did you choose that branch? What was your, what was your hope for joining the military? Well, my dad was in the Marine Corps. And he was very into the Marine Corps. My mom was secretary to the ambassador of the United States in the German consulate. So, I mean, I was raised in a very military, Marine-oriented family. I wanted to join the Marines. So I went to the Marine Corps recruiting office, and I had gotten in a little bit of trouble uh, in my late teen years. Uh, I never stole anything. I never did anything, like, unethical, but, you know, disorderly, you know, stuff. And so I had a really mild little police record. And the Marine Corps, one thing they love to say is, I'm sorry, we can't take you. You might want to visit the Army down the hall. They'll take you. <laughs> so okay. I went to the Army down the hall and I joined them. Okay. And so how did that feel though? I mean, were you disappointed in that moment? Did you, was that a, like, or were you you're like, it's fine? You know what? I was pretty used to disappointments at that point. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, I was just happy to get into the Army, to be honest with you. Okay. So what was your plan for getting in the army? Did you, were you committing to like, I'm going to do two years and be out and hopefully this gets me a career that I can build on? Or were you like, Hey, maybe this can be a career. My parents did it. Exactly. I mean, I wanted to go in for a very short period of time, do a couple of years, get out, uh, maybe get some training in there that I could utilize in the civilian world. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I signed up for a very brief period of time. Okay. And, um, I hear that some interesting things, happened once you you had to take you take some tests when you go into the military right and one has to do with kind of your mental acumen how smart you are so um wh what happened with that in one of your officers oh um yeah you take a test it's called the ASVAB test okay. um and it's a uh it's basically a mental aptitude test um and you know I didn't really think too much of it, it was a long grueling test uh and then got into basic training uh, in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And a few days into it, uh, I was called aside by a lieutenant colonel, which, I mean, that was a really big deal. They're, that's really high. And you don't see those usually on the uh, basic training basis. Um, and I was told that because of my score on that test, uh, I was invited into military intelligence. And he gave me a few days to think about it. I really didn't need to think about it too much. I mean, it, it sounded really enticing but at the same time, I just kind of wanted to do a quick time and get out. And that would have been a huge, um, I'm not saying necessarily lifetime, but 
it, yeah. it, he didn't just say, Hey, you know, you want to join military. It, it was a sit down. It was a, a long meeting and it was explained. This is what your life will be like. Uh, you're not going to want to get married because you're not going to be able to tell your wife anything. Don't raise a family because you're not going to be a good family, man. I mean, I, di I didn't want to sign wow. up for that. So I, I thanked him for the offer and, and declined. Okay. Is that something that you've ever looked back on and been like, Oh, I regret that. Or are you like, no, I'm solid oh. with that. Hell yes, especially when I watch movies like The Born Identity and, and you know, it's like, man, that could have been me. You know what I'm saying? Um, it does sound like it would have been a big kick in the butt. Uh, but but like I say, you know, wanted to get in and get out. So, mm -hmm. All right. So you got in, you got out and you found yourself in the carpet cleaning world. So talk to me a little bit about that. You were at a few companies before deciding to make some other moves that we'll get into. And we're, we're getting close to your inventor stage. We're getting there. So talk, talk to me about post-military, post-army and um, carpet cleaning. Well, actually, when I got out of the, of the army, I slid right into carpet cleaning. Uh, I came back to Portland and um, I didn't really get the education that would have uh, benefited me greatly in the civilian world because simply not that many people in the civilian world had M1A1 tanks that needed the guidance system aligned. So, you know, I found myself really, with an education that was unapplicable, but a buddy of mine had an apartment and he had some space on the floor with a sleeping bag. So I, I uh, took that opportunity, didn't have a car or anything. And, uh, there was an ad in this thing called the newspaper at the time. I know what those are. I like those. Help wanted ads. Print. And, right. <laughs> <laughs> there was an ad for a carpet cleaning assistant for mm -hmm. Sears Carpet Cleaning. It was a 20 van operation, big, big operation in Portland, Oregon. I um, walked four miles to the interview, interviewed, walked four miles back, got the job. And, you know, to me, I just got out of the army. Walking four miles is nothing, you know. Um, <laughs> Got the job. So then I, I began walking to work every day, walking back home and, and doing this, this carpet cleaning. But my first day on the carpet cleaning job, there was something about it that only another carpet cleaner could understand. It just attracted me. It just seemed cool. You know, we're transforming something into something awesome in yep. a pretty, pretty short period of time. Yep. And so the very first day I came back and I told my roommate, I'm going to start my own carpet cleaning company someday. And lo and behold, it was many, many years later and there was, you know, some other steps in between there, but yeah, that ended up happening. I love the work ethic in that of walking four miles each way. You know, you hear those stories today on the news of people doing that. And those are the people where like a stranger will gift them a car. Cause it's like a miracle that somebody would walk that far to a job. Right. So that, that is crazy work ethic. So good for you there. Okay. So you were at a couple different carpet cleaning companies and then you started your own, you started guarantee carpet and upholstery. So, um, that has you in Oregon, right? So you started the company there and when did you start that? How long have you had that company? Well, after, after Sears Carpet Cleaning, I then worked for two more carpet two, okay. companies, one of which had a duct cleaning division also, um, okay. which kind of put, planted a seed. Yep. But what was your question? When did I start it? Yep. November 17th, 1998 okay. in Oregon. Yep. All right. So, and then how long into having your company did you get into the duct cleaning side of things? Did you do that right from the get-go? No, it was several years uh, before I did that. I mean, I worked my butt off um, Monday through Saturday, all day, all, all weeking hours were cleaning carpets. And um, Bend, Oregon was a small town at the time, 30,000 people. So I was able to really, you know, create a reputation here. Um, and, and I really didn't settle for anything but a great reputation. I wanted to really build something awesome. And several years later, 
there be the demand for duct cleaning began growing. Mm -hmm. And most carpet cleaners think of duct cleaning as a, a very good add-on. I knew that it had a reputation as a good add-on, very profitable. So I decided to get some negative air duct cleaning equipment. I purchased some from a very well-known uh, distributor and I went to work in, in duct cleaning. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to step back for a second and talk about reputation building. I think that's a really important thing to talk about, right? So how did you build a really good reputation and kind of become maybe like the go-to carpet cleaner in that area? Well, bearing in mind, the internet was still in its infancy at this time. Yep. Uh, so my advertising was in the form of newspaper inserts, eight and a half by 11. I would print off 50,000 of those at a time and plaster them in the, in the, uh, the newspaper out here in Bend. So that was the advertising and pretty much the only advertising at the time, but it kept me busy uh, doing multiple carpet cleaning jobs a day. The reputation was simply because, or by way of this being a fairly small town mm -hmm. and people talk here, you know, yep. uh, we're now well over a hundred thousand people um, lost a lot of a small town field, but, but, but to answer your question, uh, the reputation was built by way of just doing a great job so that people would, would talk to their friends. Okay. All right. So you get into duct cleaning, you buy this air duct cleaning system and you're starting to realize, oop, inventor David is back. And we're starting to realize there are some things that maybe we could do different here. So what were some of the pitfalls that or the downfalls that you were seeing with the equipment that you bought and kind of the need you were seeing in that sector of cleaning? Right. Well, the, the equipment that I bought, I didn't like a few aspects of it with the negative air method. I didn't like, first of all, that you have to cut into the customer's duct system in order to access it. Mm -hmm. you cut in and then there's other aspects. For example, a lot of duct systems or most every forced air system has what is called a trunk line. And off of that trunk line are what we call supply lines, like mm -hmm. a main river with its tributaries. And where those supplies meet the trunk, there's oftentimes a damper which is a valve that, that, that moderates the airflow. And if most of the, the bigger chunks of debris, the chunks of sheetrock, the chunks of wood, the half-eaten sandwiches from the construction workers, the, the garbage, the dead rodent maybe that's down in there are in the supply line mostly. There's some in the trunk line, but they're mostly in the, in the supply lines. And by way of, of pulling the air from the trunk line, like you do with that method of cleaning, that stuff that's in the supply has to travel down into the trunk and get past that damper. Now the damper will catch a lot of that stuff. And I notice a lot of things like chunks of wood, chunks of sheetrock, a dead rat, whatever the case may be, is getting stuck on that damper and not only not being removed from the duct, but also clogging the duct further by getting stuck there. So that was one problem. I also didn't like the fact that you cut these big holes and then you have to go repair those holes after you're done. It's another time killer. Uh, you got to get sometimes under the house, quite often under the house, which is a dirty, nasty, spider-filled place to be. Um, it took an extraordinary amount of time to complete a job, hours to complete a job. And one of the things I disliked the most was as a carpet cleaner, I was addicted to, and every carpet cleaner can, can get on board with this, the magic that you're performing in front of that homeowner as you, as you swipe that carpet, turning it from a mess to beautiful. And, and watching that customer's reaction of, oh my God, look what you're doing to my carpet. That's a, you know, and that was completely non-existent in the duct cleaning industry. You, you make the noise, you go through the motions at the end, you tell the customer their ducts are clean. Hopefully they believe you. And then that's that. So I wanted a visual aspect as well as the other uh, attributes. I, I didn't like a lot of it. Okay. 
she didn't like it. So you started inventing. So that is when Ram Air is born. You came up with this own system yourself. So talk about some of the features of your duct cleaning system and how that kind of overcame, like what it was, like, you started using it on some of your own customers first, right? Like you invented it thinking it was going to be, this is for my customer, for my company. Like I'm probably not going to do anything else with it, but at least it's me and solving some problems, right? So what was the initial reaction you were getting out in the field? Well, I mean, manufacturing and, what, and whatnot was the furthest thing from my mind. I never even conceived that. All I did was just design a prototype. And, and I honestly didn't even consider it a prototype at the, at the time. I considered it a device, a method for cleaning the ducts. And while I was cleaning some carpets in some customers' houses, I would say, hey, you know, uh, do you mind if I clean your air ducts? You know, I wouldn't even charge them, I, you know, and got a pretty good response to that. And I began doing it to see how this worked. And it was working like a charm. And the customer is, because the system that I devised has a clear LED illuminated box that sits on top of the duct as you're cleaning it. So they can see all that, that debris storming out of their ducts. And they're like blown away. I got that wow factor that I was after uh -huh. you know, um, from the customer. And it just worked. It, it actually exceeded not only my expectations, but it exceeded my hopes. And and so I was very, very pleased with it. But yeah, I, I designed it just to use in my own company. Okay. And so you had some relationships in the industry at this point, and you were introduced um, by somebody also fellow, fellow military Green Beret. Is that what you said? So tell me a little bit about your relationship there and how you ended up talking to Bridgepoint. Gotcha. Well, I feel as though I should bow when I say the word John Carter, the name John Carter, amazing man. Uh, he owned a distributorship in Portland, Oregon called Cleaning and Restoration Supply, which has since been bought by Aramsco. And uh, he had been a friend of mine for many years. He helped me get started in the carpet cleaning industry. And this duct cleaning system that I had created, I, hadn't had, I didn't have a name for it or anything yet. It's just my duct cleaning system. I took it to John in Portland one day and I said, hey, John, take a look at this. You know, this, this really works great. And he looked at it and he's a real sharp business guy, been in this for, I think he had been in the business for 30 years at that point. He looked at it and he thought, he looked at me, he said, 30 years in the industry, this is the best duct cleaning method I've ever seen. He said, you got to do something with this. And he was pretty tight with uh, Bridgepoint, mm -hmm. um, big, uh, which is now a Ramsco. Ramsco, yep. Bridgepoint was a huge name in the industry. Um, they had locations, all brick and mortar locations all over the country and in five foreign countries. And so next thing you know, I'm on a plane out to Salt Lake City meeting with Gordon Hanks, which is one of the three brothers that, that started and owned Bridgepoint. Showed in the system, we demonstrated it at uh, a house out there and they loved it. And they wanted a good duct cleaning system to carry in, in, in their distribution. So they, they brought it on. And I mean, instantly this went from just in little town Bend, Oregon, me using my thing to, we had, systems in every major city of the United States and five foreign countries. And uh, so I became a manufacturer. So what was the process of becoming a manufacturer? I kind of want to pause at this step for a second. Um, I know that there are other people who have created devices in the industry and other rules like air movers or um, heaters or whatever, but what does that process look like when you're going to manufacture a product? I mean, there's a lot of steps in that, right? Yeah, especially when you never done it before and you have no idea what you're doing in that department. You know, it was a big learning process. And I probably made more bad business choices than good ones at the time. But it was, like I say, a really good learning process. Uh, there was there was a patenting process that went into play. There was 
um, finding distributors, uh, vendors for me to purchase stuff. And then there was the evolution of the product. Cause I look back now at what the Ram air duct cleaning system was at the time and what it is today. And it's a completely different animal. We've evolved it so many times since then added so much to it. Um, but it was quite a process, but, but the idea of it is more daunting than the reality. You know, one of these days, I hope to go jump out of an airplane. Skydiving is big on my list. And I'm told time and time again, the idea of it is scary. The act of it really isn't. Because once you once you start on the process, it, it it was great. It was a lot of fun, actually. Okay. All right. And that wasn't that now you've had more rodeos since then. Okay. So Ram Air is born. You have the duct cleaning system. And then you're going about cleaning and you're realizing, hey, when you disinfect ducts, this isn't going so well. So again, you've kind of found that some of the processes in the industry maybe were not the best. What were some of the things that you were seeing with the disinfection process that left some other things to be desired? Great point. Because, you know, the duct cleaning industry itself had stagnated for mm -hmm. decades. Um, and, and, uh, that was what Ram air, um, helped rectify a lot in the method of cleaning. Now, looking at the, uh, application of a disinfectant into a duct system was, was even more, uh, art antiquated. Yeah. Uh, what, what the method at the time was to take a fogger, uh, which is, you know, a portable machine that turns a liquid solution into an aerosol. Yep. And you would turn the HVAC system on in the house. And as the air is being pulled from the return duct through the system, you would point the fogger at it and blow this disinfectant fog into that, which would carry it through the duct system. Now, on the surface, that sounds great. You're getting it throughout the whole system. But in actuality, where almost all of that solution is going is into the interior of the dwelling through all the register openings. It's filling up the interior. You have to vacate the building. Uh, it's getting all over the walls, the ceiling, the floor, the bedding, uh, everything in the house is getting hit with disinfectant. And, and we actually did some testing and sometimes no disinfectant was actually sticking to the duct wall. So it was a huge failure in addition to having to vacate the home as well. So. All right. So from there, you've decided, all right, we don't want disinfectant hitting all of the surfaces everywhere. There's got to be a better way. So the Ram Air Santa Jet was born. So what did the the invention process of that look like and kind of your initial thoughts and plans and then the testing phase? Well, in this particular instance, it differed from the development of the Ram Air duct cleaning system in that I had already been through the process yep. of designing something, prototyping it, manufacturing it, getting the parts. So I was a little, I was experienced at this point on how to do that. So I had better, better ways of getting things and doing things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I made a list of, of what's wrong with the current way of doing it. And it's, it was a list consisting of two things, basically. One is the stuff isn't sticking to the duct walls and it's getting all over everything in the house. Okay. Yep. I guess a third would be that you have to vacate the house, which is kind of a big deal. In, in, in the wintertime, you got to, you know, kick elderly people out of their house. That's not cool. So I thought, how can we apply this solution directly to the duct walls and have none of it go into living space? Whenever I design something, I like to work with the end and then move the steps backward. Okay. What steps right before that that would make this happen? What steps right before that that would make this happen? Because when you move forward into designing something, it can go all over the place. When you know what your goal is, you can move in a more direct line to the present. So uh, we basically designed a system that uses a canister filled with your solution that is fed by compressed air, which you have on the site anyway, because you're using that for the duct cleaning. 
and it disperses this uh, fogged solution out of a special ball on the end of a long hose that you run down inside the duct. So by turning the air handler off rather than on, like with the fogging method, mm -hmm. you run the hose all the way down, you depress the lever, which begins fogging the, the, the solution out of that ball as you slowly retract that hose out of the duct. So 100% of it goes on the duct walls, 0% goes where you don't want it to. So it really solved all of the problems that had existed in, in sanitization. None of it goes where you don't want it to, all of it goes where you do, do want it to, and you don't have to vacate the dwelling. Did that work with, does that work with any disinfectant or is there a specific disinfectant that you need to use? What is that like? That's a great question because you want a solution that's not going to foam up and thereby foam up on that ball. And, mm -hmm. and this was a trial and error thing for us. Plus you want it to be EPA approved for HVAC. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to, okay. So I want to ask a little bit before we go, cause we're going to get kind of out of HVAC here for a second in a minute, but why is HVAC such a good niche for restoration companies and cleaning companies to get into? I mean, I think a lot of them kind of overlook it, but um, especially cause we just went through the COVID era as well. And I'm, you know, that was big on disinfection and cleaning and stuff like that. And people now realize that we're cleaning for health and there are things hanging out in our ductwork that probably shouldn't be there. And there, that can get contaminants all through a structure. So why could duct cleaning be a good thing for restoration and cleaning companies to be thinking about for their services? Excellent question. And I'm going to cite uh, the king of restoration, uh, Jeff Jones. I've got, uh -huh. to, get, got to do this. Yeah. Ready? Um, uh, restoration is, uh, uh, <laughs> it deals with uh, structure contents and indoor air quality, not necessarily in that order. And if you've ever heard uh, him speak, you know that I was just mimicking him. Uh, and his southern accent and you know indoor air quality is a big part of restoration yep so thereby hvac which by the way ducts are consisting of surfaces they just happen to be tubular surfaces and we would never dream of not dusting countertops or the top of our tv or a shelf or our counter for days well i might go days but weeks definitely not months and certainly not years and just let that pile and crud build up on it well mm -hmm. Why let it build up on a surface through which all the air you breathe travels? You're going to want to clean that. And right after cleaning it is the perfect time to apply a sanitizer, disinfectant. Yep. So, and especially in the restoration world, whether it be disaster restoration or forensic restoration, we also do meth decontamination. Uh, in fact, I think I wrote an article for you on meth decontamination. Tweak mm -hmm. your business for success. Mm -hmm. Title. Um, <laughs> So yeah, applying a disinfectant sanitizer is, is very important part of HVAC. Do you find that a lot of restoration companies, I mean, I know that you consult on jobs sometimes and you help with um, restoration projects. Do you find sometimes that ducts are overlooked more than they should be? They are overlooked sometimes. And if they're overlooked once, they're overlooked more than they should be because they are an essential part. Once again, as Jeff Jones says, structure, contents, indoor air quality. They're all, and, and he points out, not necessarily in that order. So yep. very important. It's part of the structure and it needs to be cleaned. It's the lungs of the building. The lungs of the building. All right. So keeping moving forward with the story. All right. So you started your company in 1998. Now we've moved into the 2000s and YouTube has been born and YouTube's a thing. And you're like, oh, inventor David over here. I'm going to invent some other things. So you came upon a, a homemade ozone generator DIY video, whatever. And you decide this looks interesting seems crazy to me, but okay. So what, what about the ozone generator 
um, was interesting to you? And what did it look like when you built your first one? Well, you mentioned YouTube and that actually has, it's the reason that the Ozogen, which is what we call, ran or called Ozogen, it's the reason it was born is I'm sure most of us can relate with going on watching a YouTube video and you got the little thumbnails on the right side of the screen. Oh, hey, that looks cool. You click on that and then, oh, that looks cool. And you watch one thing and you're watching something completely different. Okay. And I get caught in YouTube land a lot. And one day I'm watching, I don't know what it was, but there's this little, little thing over here, build your own homemade ozone generator. Well, remember me as a kid, right? Well, I'm still that kid. Okay. Even more so. So I got to do this. So I watched the little tutorial and it, you take a glass tube, fill it up with aluminum foil, wrap it with some copper wire. And you know, those, those plasma balls, you've seen them at like novelty yeah. shops. It's like a glass ball. It's got the electrical fingers inside. Yeah. It's got a little transformer in it about that big. Okay. And you power this uh, glass tube with the uh, constituents with one of those tiny little, very weak transformers mm-hmm. and to generate ozone. And so I, I put the pizzas together and I had to turn out the lights, make it completely, completely black and dark in the room in order to see the, the purple glow from that and almost singe my nose on it to smell the ozone being emanated from it. But it was there. I made ozone. And, you know, you almost kind of feel like a god at that point. I made ozone. I made an allotrope of oxygen. That's pretty cool. So that was my first, first time. And I, you know, I had used ozone in the industry, but I didn't know much about it. I know that you shouldn't breathe it. And I know it does some cool stuff, gets rid of odors, but you know, that was my, you first shouldn't time. breathe it, but you're almost singeing off your nose, trying to right. smell it. Right. Shouldn't doesn't mean won't. So, you know, <laughs> perfect. All right. All right. So um, you have this idea under your belt and you didn't end up building just kind of any ozone generator. That's you know, you've, you've said numbers to me and I don't fully understand how all the numbers for ozone work. So I'm going to let you just explain the process of inventing the ozogen and how strong it ended up being when you maybe didn't expect it to at the beginning. Right. Well, you know, like most guys, I think I have a Tim, the tool man, Taylor mentality, more is better, more powerful. So I wanted to make more ozone. So I tried wrapping that coil a little tighter using thicker coil, using different changing things. Okay. And, and it worked, made a little more ozone, didn't quite have to singe the nose to smell it. And then, so now I'm, I'm starting to study, study ozone, mm-hmm. figuring out what's going on here. What is this, what are these, what is this apparatus doing that's creating ozone? Yep. And I really became obsessed with that. Um, so I, I discovered what ozone was, what makes it, what, how is it getting rid of those odors? And then I discovered that it also has some really powerful disinfectant qualities as well. And uh, so I just became obsessed with this. And I would, we'd, we'd close up at the end of the day around five o'clock and I'd stick around in the, uh, in the shop and I'd start playing around with different ozone generator designs. And I started making a little more. Now I could really smell it. So, okay. I'm going to order an ozone monitor. So I ordered a mo- ozone monitor online so I could detect how much I'm, I'm making because I, I could tell in the advertising that these other ozone generators that are used in the restoration industry are putting out two, four grams an hour. Uh, the, the, the top seller is putting out 2.4. Here's another one puts out four. I'm going, okay, four grams an hour. That's my target. Okay. Hit it. Mm-hmm. Six grams an hour. Okay. All right. <laughs> so now I'm going to. Now I'm hanging out till 10 o'clock at night, every night in this shop. I mean, you know, I was one, one step short of putting the white lab coat on messing my hair up, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, 
And so then I started ordering different parts. I got some stuff from all over the country. And long story short, I ended up making six, 16 grams an hour with, uh, with a specialized plate in, in a way that it had never been done before. And so now I'm thinking patent. So, well, here, here we've got some ozone generators right there that we're, yeah. that we're building. Um, we, we put it into a professional design. I did get a patent on it. And we now have what was called the Ozogen 16G, puts out 16 grams an hour, used all over the country uh, in restoration, odor neutralization. And uh, we did some work here when, when COVID hit, yeah. we used ozone as a very powerful disinfectant as well. So how do you use ozone as a disinfectant? What does the workflow process look like? What are some facilities that we're using it? Well, you can, you use it in restoration. You can use it in, in, in any industry in order to disinfect because first of all, being a gas, what it does is it oxidizes microbes and uh, bacteria, fungi, mold, virus. Okay. Um, it'll destroy these things and pretty quickly and uh, at pretty entry level um, concentrations as well. So by simply running an ozone generator in a room, if you're able to achieve that level of ozone, it's going to get into all the crooks and crannies. Every place that a gas can get, the ozone's gonna get, as opposed to, and I'm definitely not knocking the spray and wipe thing, because that's that's backbone, okay? Yeah. Uh, you can't yeah. replace that. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not attempting to replace that with ozone, but not there's the something clean. cool yes. about being able to press a button on a machine, step out, walk away, go do something else, and while you're absent, that, that room is reaching a level of disinfection. So, all right. So let's talk about proper protocols with using ozone. I think some people hear ozone and they're like, oh my gosh, that's scary. I don't know that I want to use that, whatever. There's some misconceptions there a little bit. I mean, you know, I know there's some safety things to be aware of, but like, what are the proper safety precautions for using ozone in a restoration project? Let's say you're dealing with a fire and there's odor in the house. You're going to use it to deal with odor in the house. What is the proper protocol for using ozone? And I was that guy too, you know, when you don't understand something, you're afraid of it. Yep. And, you know, when I, I used ozone in the restoration industry prior to my, my getting involved in it at this level. And I remember setting an ozone generator in a customer's house one time and I'd left my keys in there and the ozone generator was running. And I thought, do I risk my health and potentially my life to go get my keys? I mean, you know, Yeah. and so I took a deep breath, held my, my breath. I ran in, grabbed my keys and ran back out. Well, now I realize that was silly. Um, ozone isn't even really considered a toxin, but it is an irritant and granted, you shouldn't go breathing quantities of it, especially not for an extended period of time. Um, dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So can a car, you know, but also has a great use and I'm certainly not going to use a car because there is a danger aspect to it. Use it intelligently, get trained on it and then, and then use the heck out of it. Cause it's got some great, great, uh, positives. Okay. But, but was your question more like, what are the dangers? No, it's more like, okay, so you've been running the ozone generators for a while. You know that you've ran them long enough that the odor is going to be gone. Do you need to like let the structure air out for a while or is it fine? Like once the generators are turned off, you're good to go. What does that look like? There's two ways to achieve a safe level of ozone in a structure. You can either replace the air in that structure and that would be by way of opening some doors and windows and just let it, let the ozone air blow out and mm -hmm. replace fresh air. That way you can enter it more quickly or within a couple hours, that ozone level will break down into a safe level on its own anyway. So 
All right. So what about the contents side of things? It can ozone be used on everything. I think that there are a few materials that you should not probably be leaving exposed to ozone to try to get odor out of them. Right. So talk about that a little bit. Well, most restoration, most disaster restoration companies will have an ozone chamber, an ozone room. And what they'll do is when there's been, say, a fire in somebody's home, they'll take the furniture and contents from that house, place it in this special room in their shop, fill it with ozone, and that ozone then permeates and uh, removes the odors from those contents. So yes, it does work on contents. Now, there are a few contents that you that can be adversely affected by the oxidation process of ozone. Uh, rubber, for example, some plastics, things like that, uh, as well as, let's say you clean a carpet, but you also want to do an ozone treatment, you definitely want to make sure that carpet is dry before you bring that ozone in. One thing that ozone does, since it turns O2 into O3, it adds an O, okay, and adds an oxygen atom to the molecule. It also turns H2O, which is water, into H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide. So you can bleep the carpet out. <laughs> so you don't want fabrics or anything like that to be wet in, in a place of treating. Yeah, don't want to find that out the hard way. Right. All right, so we've talked a lot about your inventions in professional life and childhood military, stuff like that, but... I know that you're involved in a lot of other things too. I mean, I know professionally you've been involved in NADCA and the RIA and some other things like that, but I know that you've also been kind of involved in your community in the Special Olympics and Guardian Angel Project and stuff like that. So talk to me a little bit about kind of the side of you that still loves service. It probably comes from the military and carpet cleaning. You know, I guess everything you've done is based in service, right? And serving other people. So how did you find other ways in your life to be involved in your communities and trying to make a difference? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you said it like that because what we do as cleaners and restorers is service. Yep. And I think it's important that we view it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's service to others. And we can go beyond that and, and work within our community as well. And since, since my early 20s, I've always felt a draw to do that. I started coaching the Special Olympics in my early 20s. And I did that for about 20 years. Um, Upon secession of that, uh, after 20 years, I'd find every year, by the way, at the end of the Special Olympics season, I'm like, I was just so spent. I'm like, this is my last year. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And then next year, I'd be back. I couldn't yep. wait to get back, you know. But there came a time where it's like, okay, it's time to step away. And then I was speaking one day with a man named Curtis Sliwa out of New York. Now, he started an organization in New York City back in 1979 when he was a teenager called the Guardian Angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York City, the subways were the scene of a lot of crime. And he and some of, he and some of his buddies wanted to do something about it. So they would ride the subways uh, wearing a red beret uh, to identify them as the good guys, kind of a good guy gang. And uh, they did that, and then they ended up getting more people uh, involved. And currently there's 5,000 guardian angels uh, all over the world. And I became a chapter leader of the guardian angels um, gosh, about 10 years ago, I had a conversation, like I say, with Curtis Lee on the phone. He said, you know, he goes, you gotta, you gotta start a chapter in Bend, Oregon. I said, little Bend. I said, no, I said, we don't have a ghetto. We don't have bad parts of town. We, we would, we would, uh, patrol P- Portland, Oregon, which does have bad parts of town. Yep. Especially now. Um, and so I said, we don't, we, we don't have a problem here. And he directed me to understand that we do. 
we do have a problem here. And it's more of a prevention thing here in Bend. We do uh, free women self-defense seminars. Uh, we'll do some victims assistance, things like that, um, which we've actually found to be quite valuable. So it's a neat organization to be, to be a part of. Are you still patrolling Portland? Is that still something you do as well? Or is that something you haven't done in a while? I haven't patrolled Portland for years. And at this point right now with what's going on over there, I think everybody knows what happened to Portland these yeah. last couple of years. And I actually just drove through there uh, a couple of days ago. I was um, quoting some uh, duck cleaning at a big commercial building out there and driving through downtown. I mean, that's my hometown and it was, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if the Guardianos are patrolling over there because they've got the police's hands so tied over there right now as it is. Yeah. I don't know if the Guardianos really have a place there right now. Yeah. So yeah. I haven't patrolled for, for a few years. So are there any moments in your life that you can look back at and say, man, that was like a really defining life moment that helped me kind of get to where I am today? Well, yeah, I mean, lots of them, you know, uh, like I say, being, being invited into military intelligence was, was, it was an honor and it kind of, it kind of helped counter some of the brainwashing that I've been told, you know, David, you're not going to amount to anything if you don't get your grades up because here was an opportunity to become something incredible yeah. without those grades you know and it kind of opened the door it opened my eyes a little bit and then starting my company starting my first company back in 1998 carpet cleaning that became a success and it's like yeah okay you know and and not just a financial success but but doing doing the right thing uh, running an ethical business taking care of people so that when you walk through town your customers see you and they go up, man, my carpet looks great. Thanks for the job you did, you know, and just making a difference, helping people with things and then getting into restoration and really helping people with some difficult times in their life, whether it be a fire or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, Yeah. There's been a lot of defining moments in my life and they keep coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You need to just identify them when they do come our way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that is a big big part of being successful, no matter how you define that word success is observing and identifying them when they come your way. I think a lot of people, a lot of negative people, um, they'll say that they don't, they don't get those, those moments in their life. And I feel they did. They just didn't identify them. And life is what you make of it, right? Everything is about perspective. So you have to put the right perspective on when things happen. And, you know, know, that, that sounds kind of cliche, but, but it's really not I mean, it's a cliche for a reason. Yes, it's, it's yeah. true. Yep. You know? It is true. Um, okay. Before we wrap it up, anything else you want to add? And I'm a little curious if you found what interesting things you found in ductwork over the years. Oh, boy. If it'll fit in a tube, I've pulled it out. Although, even at this point, after all these years, I'll still find something every now and then that surprises me. Um, I'm not going to tell you the grossest thing I've ever found. Um, because I don't know who watching this may have just had lunch, but, uh, we do get a lot of dead rats and rodents and things like that. Uh, I found a full-size football one time, uh, older homes have big ducks, like mm-hmm. homes in the twenties and thirties. I found yep. a full-size old football. They called it pigskins back then found one of those in there. i found blueprints for the house. I found 24 pieces of silverware in a duct system. You know, it's not unusual to pull out a knife or a spoon or a fork, but when I pulled out like the fourth piece of silverware and then the 10th piece of silverware and then laid them out and I had all, I had a seating for eight. Okay. (laughs) Figured that, and it was a hundred year old home, maybe back in the old recession, they were using that as their safe or something. So toys, all sorts of stuff. 
Are you the person that I talked to who got a, who found a cat? A live I did. cat? I did find a cat, a live cat. I found a lot of dead cats. Um, you well, know, what happens is sometimes a mother cat will go down there and have babies and then the babies can't get out. And that's kind of sad. But I pulled a live cat out one time um, and, and it was full grown cat. And it reminded me of a Garfield cartoon because, you know, Garfield's expressions, you yes. know, that's what this thing looked like because we have that clear box. It's just on the register. And as we're sucking, this thing gets sucked up into the box and its face was like, the look of amazement on that cat's face was just something it looked like garfield i was just trying to take a nap what yeah yeah (laughs) hilarious where's the lasagna okay perfect well i will be seeing you somewhere i am sure thank you so much for your time thank you for sharing your story and for all the inventions you've brought to the industry and i look forward to seeing you soon for more restoration today visit our website cnrmagazine.com Or find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts.